All right, open your Bibles if you haven't. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 6 to 8 here in a second. We just read 1 through 5. Pull out your sermon notes if you're visiting. There are sermon notes in the bulletin. We're moving through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter, book of 1 Corinthians, and we're moving through 1 Corinthians 5. We started our study last week. We come back to this very challenging text of Scripture, a very challenging text of Scripture. And let me read verses 6 to 8. It says, your boasting is not good. You do, not know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this text of Scripture is, as you see on your sermon notes, an attack on pride's unwillingness to discipline. And this is a very, like I said, a very challenging text of Scripture. And as we go through this text, I want you to to think about this. A little sidestep here question. Have you ever feared getting to the end of your life and then finding out you missed out on something very important. And I'm talking about like getting to the end of your life and realizing, oh my, I'm not going to heaven. That is something we all should be concerned about. But from a physical standpoint, like you get to the end of your life and you realize, oh my goodness, I haven't planned for retirement. I'm 70, I'm 80 years old, and I've got nothing to live on. What am I going to do? How, you know, that would be very difficult. And if you said, well, then I'm going to start planning. It's too late. You should start when you're in your 20s and your 30s to plan for retirement, the way our economy works. Or how about your health? You get to your 70s and your 80s, notwithstanding some physical disability or an accident occurring, but you come to the end of your life and you say, my goodness, when I was 20 and 30, I should have been exercising. I should have been eating differently. And now here I am and I don't have very good health, and it's going to be a lot harder for me to turn this all around. Obviously, you can understand, you want to make sure that in life, you have some of these things down. Well, how about this? This is one that is kind of interesting challenge. Have you ever come to the end of your life? It would be horrible to come to the end of your life and realize you didn't have God's hedge of protection around you. And what am I talking about? In the Bible, the Bible talks about this not always in a clear you know passage and like this is how you get it but as if this exists and that is that there is a sense where God protects those who are believers in him we alluded to it last week in the book of Job Job chapter 1 and 2 where Satan wants to attack Satan wants to attack Job go after Job but he can't because God has put a hedge around him and then we know that God says, okay, I'll like sort of remove it. You can do whatever you want to Job except actually take his life. And you say, well, are there other passages on the hedge? Not, well, indirectly there are. In the, we looked at one in the book of 1 Timothy last week where two men were taken out of protection and God allowed them to be turned over to Satan as well as that's what our passage is alluding to. And the fact that we see this, and I could bring up other passages, there is this sense where if you begin to grasp that there is God's hedge of protection on those who are believers, 
you should say, I want that. I want that protection. And just to make it clear, we said last week, people could go through the same trial, but for different reasons. There are people who get sick, and it's because God has judged them. There are people God allows to get sick, and it's because he wants them to be purified. So you can't always say, I know why this is happening, or I know why that is happening. But you look at verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This person that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 is losing God's hedge. He's losing God's protection. And this is why this passage, I think, makes it so important for you to pay attention and understand why you want to have God's protection. We learned about this. And then also we're learning why it's important for a church to sometimes say, from our perspective, this person is no longer under God's protection. And that's what is so challenging about this text. And the church at Corinth was unwilling to do that. And we said that this passage deals with some really bad sexual sin. Um, We saw at the end of verse 1, it says that someone has his father's wife. And we went and referred to passages in the Old Testament that this is an incestuous relationship. This is a sexually immoral relationship carried over from the Old Testament to the New Testament that we recognized even Romans weren't practicing this and looked at this as pretty detestable. But the focus wasn't on the fact just that this was occurring. It was on the very fact that the church had become arrogant. Look at verse 2. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. How did they become puffed up? How did they become big-headed? We've seen them deal with arrogant problems earlier in the book, but now they're dealing with this other issue. And what is this issue? And that's the fact that they wouldn't put this person out. They wouldn't excommunicate them. And we get down to where we're picking up today in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Your bragging is not good. And so what we're seeing is, and this is why the theme is, we need to attack pride's unwillingness to discipline. And here I got a little slideshow for you if you get the lights. This, this is attacking pride's unwillingness to do church discipline. And there's a lion with pride, and I have to give you that. The reason here is because man's pride is more dangerous than even a lion's pride. And the lion's pride are all, you have a lion with all the females. And I found this really interesting a little side note here about how we came up with the idea of a, of a lion's group being called a pride. Um, in English, it says many animal groups are named based on some virtue or vice or other idea associated with the, with the animal. Lions were traditionally seen as regal and elevated, so their group is called a pride. Owls are associated with wisdom, so a group of owls is called Anybody know? Parliament. <laughs> a parliament. Um, monkeys are formed troops. I can't I get that. Many animal groups are called herds. Birds that don't have a specific name for their, for their groupings form flocks, and crows have it really bad. The proper name for a group of crows is murder. Yeah, murder. As in, oh, look, a murder of crows. But uh, what, what we can understand, you know, so here's the image 
that you need to understand lions are strong, vicious animals, but their man's pride is more dangerous than even a lion's pride. Pride unchecked brings destructive fire to any situation. And we've been talking through our study of 1 Corinthians about how bad pride is. And do you recognize the severity of pride? Ironically, it's considered one of the seven deadly sins. Now, there's no passage in Scripture that says these are the seven deadly sins. But theologians, they group them. There's different verses that reference the, the seven deadly sins. But I just wanted to point out that when people look at serious sins... At least you recognize, wow, I could see being lustful or having a lot of anger. You recognize that pride is a very severe sin. Many relationships are ruined because of pride. Ego is just a small three-letter word which can destroy a big 12-letter word called relationship. And people, pride, ego destroys relationships. Pride destroys most relationships. Uh, The destruction is devastating. And we we can see that. We've seen it through our study. And what we see in our culture is pride causes people to not drop what is important to them. And it says, small print, sometimes it's hard to open your hand, but you need to. And in this case, what we have are people that say, look, for whatever reason, we don't want to be the church that brings discipline on an individual. We don't want to say that we're better than someone and that they're in sin. And so we're definitely not going to want to have that reputation. Whatever the reason, or or we want to be seen as the most magnanimous church around, we're surely not going to drop that. But the reality of it is, is then we begin to to act just like mankind. And, And just taking, we all know our culture today has what we look just in one segment, these pride parades. An unsaved man promotes their pride in many ways, not just in these pride parades but i just thought wow what a great image because the reality of it is is mankind is very very proud of the way that they approach life and they want to take pride in it and i found it interesting man's pride at the same time does not want anything to do with restricting sin in the name of love and out of one of the pride parades there was this big banner you can't kill love because if you start telling people that their way of living is wrong, then you've, you've killed love. But the reality of it is just the opposite is true. If we're seen for the good of people, like we saw last week, the good of people, once we start doing the right thing, we are loving them. But the world turns it on its head and says, you're not being loving, okay? And we have to recognize, in pride, man challenges God all the time over what is a sin. And here... This is a meme that was going around, is fornication. Fornication is a big word. It's having sex before marriage. Is it really a sin? And yes, it is. It is a sin, okay? And, but mankind today says, no, it's not. And this comic was cut off. Um, it says, um, beliefs to enable your sinful lifestyle, like a man is coming to a, 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 a hamburger joint. Sadly, many people pridefully play church where they pick and choose their practices, And that is not what we are to do, okay? Pride says, I know better than God in theology and what a church does. And I hope you can read this, but this is, you know, I love Calvin and Hobbes. And and, um, Calvin says, do you think babies are born sinful? That they come into the world as sinners? 
And then the little you know, lion Hobbes says, no, I think they're just quick studies. Well, <laughs> he says, whenever you discuss certain things with animals, you get insulted. And sort of like he's been put in his place. But the reality of it is, is the Psalms and the Bible tells us all have sinned. And David himself says, in sin, you know, uh, you know he was conceived. And the fact that when he's born, you're born a sinner. And, and mankind wants to, even in comics, come out and say, well, we're surely not going to take God's word on what's right and what's wrong and how sin is to be viewed. So let's understand how an unwillingness to confront pride confront was prideful and led to more sin in Corinth. And remember, the center of sin and pride is I. I know better than God. I know what's right and what's wrong. I know And that's what we have got to recognize. As God makes certain decisions, we've got to adhere to what he says, not what we want. So if you get the lights, that's where we were going last week and what we've looked at because just if you look at the way this flows, and this is just a great passage for you to understand an argument that there are three groups of people that are going to benefit from this discipline. And the very first one was the professing believer. So as the Apostle Paul wraps up that very first section in verse 5, he says, um, I decided, verse 5 says, to deliver such a one to, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, because we said professing believer, we don't know exactly where that person is. We don't know from the perspective of eternity where they're at. So we said there's two possibilities. If they are a genuine believer, we know both of we know they're professing to be a believer, and we said it's the man that's involved in this sin. We don't think the woman was a believer because the emphasis is on the man. We if he is a genuine believer, the more sin you rack up, the less it takes less um, it, the more it takes away from your reward, so the less reward you would get. And so it's important that you get off this earth. And so God would have him killed. And that ties into other passages. And that's shocking. You think, well, I'm coming to church. I want to learn about God and God's love and God's grace. But the reality of it is, is passages like this, as well as 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, talk about the fact that God does take believers out. And it's for their good. And then second, if they're not a believer, theologically, the destruction of their flesh, we would believe they would go through difficulties and realizing they're no longer under the hedge. Things are happening in their life. Their life is difficult. And hopefully, they will wake up before it's too late and call out to God and get saved. So if, if you can imagine that if you've got somebody that professes to be a believer and nobody ever brings any discipline to them, they waltz up, and if they're not genuine, but they're professing, and all of a sudden, they die, and they stand before God, and just obviously, hypothetically, just God says, you know, why should I let you into the kingdom? And they say, well, I'm a believer. I said, no, you weren't. Get away from me, right? We know Matthew chapter 7 says, get away from me. I never knew you. Maybe you would face that person, and, and they would turn to you and say, well, why didn't you ever challenge me? Well, I know that you were sleeping around and I know you were, you were doing this sin or you were doing that sin. I just didn't want to embarrass you. I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to be offensive to you. I didn't want to make you feel comfortable. And I truly believe it's not 
too hypothetical that some people are going to say, well, my goodness, now I'm going to hell and you wouldn't step up and, and do, deal with me with a little uncomfortability? I think you look at verse 5. I've decided to deliver such a one over for the structure of his flesh so the spirit may be saved. Let's wake this person up before it's too late. How they're saved? Because we know once saved, always saved. What the range there is, I believe that God is going to work in their life, either to terminate them as a believer or to wake them up as an unbeliever. And here now, though, this builds... And the second part of this is, fill in the blank, for the good of the church as a whole. Pick up in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. And the your is like the church. You, you boast, you bragging, it's not good. This is not a good thing. Now remember, we already settled the, the reality that, that they have, in verse 2, decided not to excommunicate them. And so somehow, some way, they've taken this pride and they're bragging about it. And they're talking about how wonderful they are and we're the loving church and we're the kind church and we're the magnanimous church. He goes, but this is not good. And here he brings up this imagery. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And the concept of leaven here is dealing with yeast. And he says, you know, like women take, bakers put yeast into dough and it spreads. And he goes like, do you not know? And remember, remember that the Apostle Paul uses that expression 11 times, 10 times in the book of 1 Corinthians alone. And the do you not know is not a like, um, nice way, is a challenging way of trying to say, this is something you should know, but you're acting like you don't. It's like when you tell your kids, do you not know you were supposed to take out the trash? Do you not know that you were supposed to you know, clean up your room. Do you not know? And if the kid comes back, I didn't know. He's like, come on. You know, look at chapter three, verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Chapter three, verse 16, first Corinthians. He says, do you not know? And we believe that the apostle Paul had taught them and made it very clear that they were the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells amongst them. And that them that they represent God and God as a temple. Do you not know this? You should know this. You're a church. You should understand. You're a representation of God. And so he talked about the fact that the church is holy. And um, God, if anybody goes to attack a church and ruin it, God will destroy them. We said in that study that God does allow churches, not the big church, but individual churches to be destroyed. So verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For holy and that is what you are and so he's basically saying listen you need to understand this is serious and so throughout history there have been churches that have been destroyed individual churches we're talking like the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna and people have been held accountable I believe that but when we come back to chapter three and it says you do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough he's he's challenging them to think through this process where yeast is pictured as something that spreads. Now, in Scripture, the spreading of yeast has been used all the way back in the book of Exodus at the Passover. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. 
or by even Jesus himself to talk about something that's good. How You've got to find the context to determine the spreading is not the problem. The element that's being spread is, and uh, I have a reference, but I can't find it right now. Um, the idea, the fact that the spreading isn't the problem. But what is, is what if you're talking about sin or you're like talking about like the kingdom of God, if it spreads, that's good, okay? Um, so when he says, do you not know, they should have been aware of this. And I, I, th- I think in this context, he's talking about the awareness of how sin spreads. I'm not sure if he's talking about baking. I don't know how well everybody would have been bakers at this time. Um, I, I mean, I looked at my life, I was thinking about it. I have a limited understanding of cooking, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I mean, even this week, I'm scrambling eggs for Joshua, my son, and I was so happy because you know, it's only been in the past few years that I learned how to scramble eggs. And <laughs> thank you, Edith. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I always thought this was more complicated. I, <laughs> I did, I did. Well, it all goes back. When Becky and I were first married, I was going to be this really magnanimous husband, and I'll, I was going to bake her a cake, and I've shared this before. I pulled the cheese out, she's out and I pull off of the, out, out of the counter, or out of the closet, of the cabinet, chocolate cake, and I got to this thing. I was going to make her a chocolate cake. But then I got to the instructions, and when it got to the high-altitude instructions, I got so confused, and I said, am I in a high altitude, and I'm not in a high altitude, and I put the cake back, and I think I bought a cake, (laughs) okay? All that to say is, I'm not sure how much everybody knows about baking. When Paul says, do you not know, I think he was talking about the fact that they would have been taught somehow, some way, about how sin spreads, because look at verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. And for Christ, our Passover has been, sac- has been sacrificed. So clean out the old leaven, like get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new lump. Now, the, the idea is, is, you know, get rid of that. And when he brings up the fact that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, we know from the book of Exodus when God instituted the Passover sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice occurred, and then it started what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they, had, they, they would have this feast, and it was a reminder uh, to them of the fact that, that they were to quickly leave Egypt, and they didn't have time for their bread to have the yeast spread and then rise. And so it was a reminder to them of how God quickly got them out. And that whole week, that whole week that they celebrated that feast was a time that they had no yeast in their house. And, and I, I don't know if I can say this officially, but there are some people who think that this was also a health practice that God put in for Israel, that once a year that they cleaned out all the yeast in their house. And so that, that, that's a possibility. I just put that as a side note. But Israel understood the concept of the unleavened bread and the fact that, they, that this was representative not only of their quick exodus, but the fact that 
over time, Israel developed this theology that the leaven represented sin. And so when he says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed, it's kind of interesting that here Paul is writing a Gentile church who he's only spent 18 months with, but he expects them to understand the concept of the Passover and, and the concept of how the lamb was killed, the blood put over the doors, and God passed over. And Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, and Christ is that. And ironically, this is like one of the types and images of you know, how Jesus fulfills passages in the Old Testament. There's no passage in the Old Testament or New Testament that explicitly has Jesus as the goat of the atonement. Indirectly, we, I talked to, um, I looked at it in Hebrews 10 would be an indirect passage, but this is an explicit passage of how Jesus pick, t- picking all Old Testament imagery is fulfilling one of them, and that is of the Passover. And so Jesus Christ, of how his blood pays for, or, or allows, I'm gonna say pays for, at that point, the imagery is that the, that the angel of death passed over and we're not judged because that blood is applied to us. The Apostle Paul's challenge is, verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, okay, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, malice, intense hatred, wickedness, corrupt things, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity, genuineness, and truth. So how are we to celebrate the feast? And are we to do an annual Passover feast? Um, with the unleavened bread. No, I think what he's talking about is how we live our lives. Our lives are to be a celebration of what Christ has done for us. And some people think, well, this is just communion. I think it's, it includes communion when we have the bread and the cup, but it's beyond that. It's, it's how we actually live our lives. And the exhortation is, therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's talking here about the church. The church is to live out its life without, the real, with, without ongoing practicing sin in the church. Now, again, like I said last week, this isn't like where we go on a witch hunt and you, know, you have a bad thought and we're going after you. Oh, you mess up and we go after you. Somebody indirectly you know you 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 do something wrong and you confess it and you move on you you know even in that video we showed earlier identity you move on but if somebody is blatant in their sin they're living with someone and they're are they're they're doing some ongoing bad practice and you challenge them and they don't care god wants the world to know the church isn't going to take that lightly and as i said Last week, the challenge for me as a pastor isn't sometimes to, for me to deal with this. I'm more than willing to deal with this, and I think our elders are more than willing to deal with this. But sometimes, if I don't have first-hand evidence, I can't directly go after anybody. And I'm saying go after or talk to someone or directly or deal with them. But you got to remember, we're doing it for their, their good, not for just trying to embarrass somebody. Um... I have a series of passages I want you to look at. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I think 
We have to remember what God calls us as a church to be. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 18, look at the Apostle Paul writing to the church later. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. He's talking here about the church and, and the fact that we're controlled. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live may, might no longer live for themselves. Here's the reality. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you recognize you're no longer in control of your life. He's Lord. He's boss. He's master. And so verse 15, and he died for all so that they who live may no longer live for themselves. For him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him no longer... We know, we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's where I wanted to take this, the emphasis. Now, therefore, these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be new creatures. We're to be different. We are to act different. We are not to give in to unholy living. And so, therefore, act as new creatures. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, in the pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Again, talking about the church and understanding what God has done in our salvation. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It's available to everybody. That's what it means, not universal salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and God, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to be people who are different. And, you know... We are not to be the people who are running pornography shops and, and alcohol shops and, and other wicked things. And we should not be people that are involved in alcohol and drugs and all those things. Now, some of you will mess up and you confess your sin and you move on. But if I confront you and you say, I don't care, then, then we've got a problem. And, and if somebody was in a fornication situation or a homosexual situation or any other sexual immorality and they don't care, then yes, you've got a problem. So God has called us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. First Peter, turn over to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. And you can see if the church is getting together today and people think well this is just a really nice fellowship and everyone needs to get to you know recognize us as the nice church and the and the comfortable church we have to balance the reality of the fact that we are to represent God's holiness on church remember first Corinthians 3 talked about the church is holy so first Peter chapter 1 verse 13 therefore the apostle Peter writes in chapter 1 therefore prepare your minds for action Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former life of yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And the idea that we are to be obedient children, we are to live differently. We are to be people who recognize the seriousness of our calling. And so when you go and you see this person living in an incestuous relationship and you're living in doing something that's absolutely wrong and you got to come to the point and say, you can't represent us as a fellow Christian because we expect different type of behavior. Now, we're assuming that Paul or someone talked to this individual or somebody did and, and, and he didn't care. Well, if you don't care, you're not going to be associated with us. And that's why you get excommunicated. One more passage, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, just moving through the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such as we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The idea of purifying ourselves, we grow. You know, I am a totally different person than I was 30 years ago when I first became a believer. I've grown and I've understood how to incorporate more, I'm gonna put it, righteousness in my life. Not that righteousness earns my salvation, but the fact that I am evidencing it as I grow in wisdom and stature before God. And so everyone who has this practice, who everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sins. So understand God looks at sin as something serious. Now, turn back to 1 Corinthians and you say to yourself, well, is this mean that every time I do something wrong, I'm subject to church discipline? No, but if you're living a life where you just don't care, you don't care what God's righteousness is and what, how it looks, and people talk to you about it, and you just say, forget you, and church isn't something that's important to you, and, and living life for holiness isn't important to you. Absolutely. Then if you've like been baptized, and you've been saying that you, you know, you're someone who regularly attends Christian Fellowship Church, then at one point, we've got to say, no, you can't be associated with us. And, and it's for our good. Because look at when he says, okay, I can find my notes in 1 Corinthians 5. What, what I'm trying to get you to understand is if you look, it says for the good of the church as a whole, it's like fads. You know, you, you'll see people all jump on a bandwagon, you know, where something becomes something popular to do. And everyone will start to do it. And next thing you know, you know, it's like, was a year ago, people were this, doing this thing, planking. It's like, every, like, why would you do that? Why everybody started doing it? Well, here's, here is what we've got to recognize with sin. People start saying, well, it's no big deal that so-and-so is sleeping around before marriage. It's no big deal that someone's drinking and getting drunk on a regular basis. It's no big deal that somebody's doing this sin or that sin. And God says, if that begins to happen in the church before you know it, before you know it, it spreads to the entire church. And that brings devastation to the church. It brings the fact that everyone starts acting as if sin is important. And I got one last passage I just remembered. Turn to second, the second chapter of Revelation. Because here's where the danger for any church comes in. 
So last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. You turn there. I really want you to see this and then we'll close. Yeah, okay. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 18. Remember, there are seven churches and each one gets an evaluation. You've got the church at Ephesus that lost its love at first and you've got... The church at Philadelphia, which was a faithful church. But when you come to chapter 2, verse 18, you've got the church at Thyatira. And the church at Thyatira is a compromising church with sin. Look at verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So, wow, this sounds like a really great church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Jezebel, we believe this was representative of a person that was just like the woman Jezebel from the Old Testament, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So they commits acts of immorality in a spiritual sense and then we believe in a physical sense. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and get this, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Basically, I'm going to kill these people. This is writing to the professing church. I'm going to put them on a bed of sickness. And if you say, wait a second, God doesn't do this, I remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we take communion on a regular basis, many were sick, not just a few, many were because they weren't taking communion correctly. And you see, you say, why would you bring this up, Mike? Well, because we're working through 1 Corinthians word, word, verse by verse, and here's the reality, this is a serious thing. So that when you come to life and, and, and you recognize Oh my goodness, I should have treated sin more serious. I should have treated holiness more serious. And I also should have realized how important it was to have God's hedge around me. I don't want you to have such a regret. So go back to 1 Corinthians and let's just remind ourselves how important this is for us as a church. And at this point, this day, there's nobody up for church discipline. So this isn't like a precursor. I'm not trying to get anyone prepared for anything and there's no agenda on my part other than for us to have the resolve that prideful people will say, we're not gonna do church discipline. We're not gonna bring anybody out for church discipline. We're gonna boast and brag just like the church at Corinth. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. If you start becoming like that, then it ruins your church. That's what he says, verse 6, your boasting is not good. It's not beneficial, good, beneficial. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Well, now we're all better bakers. We all know that. And so verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Clean out the old pitcher of sin. Get rid of it. We know now that we're born again people. We don't have to sin the same way that we did prior to becoming believers, We don't have to, just as you are in fact unleavened. We are unleavened. We are born again. We are holy. That's why I showed the image of the movie Identity. We are holy in Christ, but we know we're still in the flesh today, so yet we struggle. I know that. 
For Christ, our Passover has also, has also has been sacrificed. Right, he's passed over us. We're not under judgment. But at the same time, therefore, verse 8, in conclusion, let us celebrate the feast. What feast? The celebration of the unleavened bread that's tied to the Passover. Not with old leaven, the old influence of sin, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. We are not to be wicked people, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So I wrote this for conclusion. No, the church is not on a witch hunt to find outward sin. But this is a reminder that the church is to be holy. God expects his church to be holy. Will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to represent it the way God wants us to? If not, this passage shows the church will suffer. People will get into sin and sin is bad and there's consequences. The church in Corinth, one author said, was called carnal, fleshly, And the church was characterized by a sinful practice that ought to have been corrected. But the people would not do it. The church is now being rebuked for not putting out of their fellowship a particular sinning Christian. We think this is a good example. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Many people will say this. Many people will say, judge not that you not be judged. But the fact that the church is not perfect does not change the fact that they are required to exercise discipline of this kind of overt sinful action. That doesn't mean we think we are perfect and there is nobody in this church who lives his life perfectly without ever having a lustful thought, a greedy thought, an angry thought for the weak or whatever. But it doesn't change the fact that overt acts of sin are to be dealt with. If a person will not abandon their sin, they are to be excluded from the fellowship of believers. I mention this because you never have a case of discipline in the church where someone is going to be put out of the fellowship, where there aren't people who think they are more spiritual than God, who have reasons why I don't think we should be doing this. And besides, if you put this person out, how are they going to grow? How are they going to hear the truth? How are they going to change? We need to welcome them and let them hear the truth. And as long as they'll listen to truth, we ought to, and you fill in the blank. But God has not called us to come up with plan B. God has not called me to solve his problems he has called me to be a servant and allow him to do his business in and through so the church at Corinth was being fleshly and they wouldn't discipline someone and I just pray that we would never be like Corinth and if you're sitting here and you're saying wait a second this is what is all about well this church is all about the love of God that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins and has called us to be new creatures and yes, you need to fear God's judgment. If you think church discipline is bad, you wait until you're, you face God and he sends you out in eternity. Hence, it's critical that you believe in Jesus today and you place your faith in him and you know that you're born again because there's only one life that you get. No second chances. No such thing as purgatory. No such thing as a second chance. You get to the end of your life and you haven't, had a relationship with Jesus Christ and you pass on into eternity, it is over for you. You better believe we better treat this serious and people better realize we're not playing games at Christian Fellowship Church. And you better not because I love you and it's love that brings discipline and love that brings the gospel. Spare the rod, hate the child. And you may not like that, but some of you, some people in the world, when they won't tell people they're in sin, you hate and the exact opposite of the world, what the world claims, you're saying, oh, you're restricting love when we discipline. No, you who do not discipline 
hate. And I pray that we get the right orientation of God's holiness as well as understanding God's love. We do this for the best betterment, not only of the church, but for the individual. And I pray that like a good doctor who cares and will tell the patient the hard thing, you understand that's what we're doing today. Telling you the hard thing. And if it scares you and some of you are in sin, and like I said, some of you, if you're in sin, the reason we haven't confronted you is because no one's come before being told me. If you're in sin, repent. Get right today so that it never gets to this point for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your grace, your mercy, and protection of our church. Lord, all of us have fear who are believers because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't want to play games with sin in any way. And we look at our lives and we get confronted with sin and we're conscious of the things that maybe we struggle with. But I'm thankful, God, for the men and women here that they struggle and, and that they often will confess it and they'll talk and they'll, they'll, they'll see patterns of their life of sin broken. Help them, God, to have comfort when we talk about something so serious here that they understand that is not the type of overt sin that we're talking about in this passage. I pray, God, that though we all know people who live together or do things that are wrong and the world just doesn't care that they're drunkards or they're drug addicts or they're thieves or they're fornicators or homosexuals or effeminate, but in your eyes, these are overt sins. And may any who profess to be believers not practice in such things. And may we understand the seriousness of it. And if there is somebody that's here today and they're not a believer and they're maybe aghast by such harshness, may this wake them up to the reality of the seriousness of your judgment. In Christ's name, amen.